0: One of nature's greatest triumphs has to be the surprisingly wide array of visual organs known as the eye. An ability to see and thus to represent internally with precision the surrounding environment gave living creatures an innovative ability to interact with their environments. Many eyes found in nature are rudimentary, yet some creatures possess sight organs of remarkably elegant design. The seeming craftsmanship that goes into the eye represented a mystery to early scientists probing the workings of evolution. Charles Darwin pondered this very issue in The Origin of Species, confessing that on first inspection the eye's complexity made its development by natural selection seem, to quote Darwin, absurd in the highest possible degree. Yet Darwin suspected that it might be possible to determine how the evolution of eyes took place if one probed how variation in anatomy changed over time. 150 years later, we have learned a great deal about this marvel of evolution. Dr. Ivan Schwab, professor of ophthalmology at UC Davis, has set out to catalog the stunning assortment of visual equipment which animals display in his book, Evolution's Witness, How Eyes Evolved. Dr. Schwab's richly illustrated volume shows in fine detail how a study of photoreception will establish a compelling witness to the mechanisms that drive evolution. The strange and wonderful details of this pathway are matters we're keen to discuss with our guest today. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Ivan Schwab.
1: Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here.
0: You define an eye as an organ that receives and recognizes light and has an ability to define spatial detail. Some primitive creatures qualify as having eyes or things akin to eyes that may surprise listeners with just how primitive they are. Can we start by you telling us about some of these animals or, or quasi-animals to, to, I guess, invent a word, but the concepts there.
1: <laughs> well, actually... Um, These animals are not primitive. They might be considered basal, but they fit very well into their own niche. In fact, they fit so well into their own niche that the eye, although it may be less complex than ours, for them it works perfectly well, and many of them have lived as a species considerably longer than humans.
0: Uh, I don't imagine people would guess that there are 12 different types of eyes out there, each with different capabilities. Um, I I certainly didn't know that. can you kind of outline the, these bits? I think some people will be quite familiar with and others not at all. There may be twelve that we know about
1: and there may be more yet to find, especially in the smaller creatures, uh, creatures in the in the ocean that may be one or two or three or a handful of cells. But let's talk about some of these eyes. The eye we're most familiar with, of course, is our own, and it's called a camera-style eye. The reason it's called a camera eye is it resembles, to some degree, a camera. It has a front lens uh, that would include both the cornea and the lens inside the eye, as well as a film, and that would be the retina, and to an extent, a diaphragm. And that would make the the pupil smaller or bigger, depending on the amount of light. And that would be equivalent to changing the f-stop on a camera, changing the ability for the camera to accept light. So we're most familiar with camera eyes, and they're most common in the vertebrate species. Some invertebrates, like octopus or like even uh, scallops, have camera-style eyes. Uh, But the invertebrates have a vast array. And this is where the most exciting and unusual forms of eyes exist. For example, compound eyes. Uh, Compound eyes mean that more than one unit of the eye combines together, often in the thousands, to create an eye. And you think of these eyes most commonly in the bees or flies that bother you on a picnic uh, during the summer. These eyes have many units. And those units are called omatidia or singular omatidium. That's Greek for little eyes. And those little eyes make a unit, an entire unit, sometimes, as I say, numbering into the 15 or 20 or 25,000 that you might see in a dragonfly. In the compound eyes, it's not so simple to say they're all like the um, fly's eye or the bee's eye. In fact, some of these eyes are very different. And just to illustrate, the eye that might serve a bee well during a brightly lit day would not serve a moth well. It wouldn't collect enough light. So even though the moth has these same omatidia, the same units, the same little units, the inside of the eye is very different. It's optically different, uh, and it collects much more light. In fact, a thousand times more light. So there's at least six different forms of compound eye. So Even within the classification of compound eye versus camera style eye, Um, the compound eyes are much more diverse.
0: Your book has been described as a a candidate to become a classic for students of eyes. And while your book is filled with anatomy, unlike perhaps some of the prior classic books, Evolution's Witness goes back to the beginnings of life to start with the molecules that made vision possible. Can you talk a bit about those first molecules that captured light energy and and how they're at the root of of all the eyes that are out there? The compounds,
1: the molecules that are most important to the eye, include a relative of vitamin A. That's why we talk about carrots and vision because carrots are full of uh, a vitamin A compound. The vitamin A compound is called retinol, and it's uh, like vitamin A and derived from vitamin A. Retinol is the part of the photoreceptive compound in the eye that actually does the exchange of energy. The first cell probably acquired retinol from the prebiotic soup, that material that consisted of amino acids, of proteins that would eventually uh, form a cell. Vitamin A, or this retinol, was probably somewhere in the mix. Once the cell acquired retinol, it actually was a energy source. We call it a proton pump. What that means is it's a source of energy for those individual cells. So it didn't start out to be an eye. It started out to help the cell with energy. If you add to that a protein, an opsin, and that's a protein that helps decide which level of light or which light wave will be accepted, sort of tuning the retinol. And that means it's sort of saying, well, blue will be the light wave that I get the most energy from, or maybe red will be the light wave I get the most energy from, the opsin combines with the retinol quite nicely to say I'll take the blue light and make the most of it. Only after using the combination of retinol and anopsin was a cell then able to use this to recognize light of a particular wavelength. So those two compounds together forming rhodopsin, or what's sometimes called visual purple, uh, sometimes you talk about this in school, this first compound would have been very helpful to provide energy to the cell and would have been useful for the cell to recognize light from dark. But that wouldn't qualify for an eye. But being so useful, this is what we call highly conserved, meaning that this is maintained throughout uh, the collection of cells into multicellular animals. Another molecule that would have been made very early would have been the genes that create eyes. Uh, These genes uh, have a name. They're called the PAX genes. Um, It's not important about the name, but what is important is that these genes formed very early and are very highly conserved, meaning they're seen across all animals, all multicellular animals. Even coral, a very basal organism, even coral has PAX genes. Now these genes go on to do more than just form an eye. In fact, they form your, help form your head and help form your your sense of smell and your sense of vision. But that requires many more genes. The Pax genes that form your head and form sight and eyes probably started very early and also highly conserved. So these are at least two of the molecules that came along very early in evolution.
0: I've always been amazed that among mollusks, which include clams and snails, we actually find an eye that that appears better designed than than human eyes in in the octopus.
1: The octopus has an interesting eye and in some ways is better designed than a human eye. It is a camera-style eye, as we spoke of earlier. It has a cornea and a lens and a retina. Now, surprisingly, some octopuses uh, do not have a cornea. If they live in the open ocean, their eyes actually open to seawater. If they live on the continental shelf, the octopuses that live on the continental shelf do have uh, a cornea. In fact, they can regenerate their cornea if it uh, is lost. Um, That camera-style eye uh, focuses well. It accommodates well. That is, it changes focus well for near and far. Uh, and it has a retina that sees well, although not as not as well as we do. The interesting thing about the retina is that it has only one photopigment. It, that is, it can only see one color. Now, the way you see color is that your photoreceptors compare the input of the blue and the green and the red photoreceptors. Your brain compares those to say, well, that's a blue or that's a yellow or that's a green. If you have only one photopigment, you can't compare it to any other color so that makes you colorblind. So those magnificent animals, the octopuses that can change color to their environment uh, that can do all the unusual things with their pigment sacs in their skin, those animals are colorblind.
0: Well, in talking about humans versus octopus, it sort of startled me. You had a little stat in there that at the genetic level about 70% of the genes that cause the formation of the eyes in these two very different types of animals are the same, even though our last common ancestor goes back something like 600 million years ago. And I guess that among other lessons today, uh, we could talk about in evolution is that how sometimes you need to retain information and uh, it is retained. Doug, you're quite right. Not only is it retained, it's retained for hundreds
1: of millions of years because it works so well. It may actually be Older than 100 million. It could be as many as a billion years old. But let's, let's say it's 600 million years old when, when we uh, diverged. Probably those genes that are common were already present at the time. They virtually had to be. So that means that we have so much in common with any multicellular organism because they start, all started so early, especially in the formation of the head and the eyes and other sensory mechanisms.
0: Well, i us just talking a little bit about, about evolution itself. People think of it as something maybe going A to B to C in a linear fashion, kind of walking down a path. But um, I'd say your book shows the process is more like an explosion where, where, where things hurtle off in every direction and, and also shows that, as we alluded to a moment ago, I think that um, sometimes things may just simplify rather than get more complex depending upon the animal's needs. You talked about a primitive animal. Uh, a primitive is in quotes, I guess, for the animal, being having eyes that are functional for it. But uh, cave animals may lose their eyes completely, so evolution really can go uh, forward or forward as you will or backward as you will or in a lot of directions.
1: Quite correct. And you raised a couple of very interesting points there. Uh, evolution doesn't go in a linear step from A to B to C, but rather does explode, just as you suggested. It doesn't mean that, for example, uh, we evolved from the... Um, Uh, other primates such as the great apes, but rather we go back to a common ancestor that gave rise to both the great apes and eventually also to humans. So it isn't like we arose from the great apes, rather from a common ancestor. The second point you raised, you made the point that animals can lose their eyes or actually uh, appear to lose parts of their eyes. And this is a, a prime example of the fact that Eyes are not necessarily uh, needed in a a complete fashion. Uh, You're asked, or I should say, I'm asked sometimes what good is half an eye. Well, there's one species that illustrates this perfectly well. There's a shrimp that in its larval form has an eye like other shrimp. But as it forms, as it goes through the stages to become an adult shrimp, it sinks in the water from the superficial waters to the deep waters and becomes a shrimp beside the vents, perhaps as deep as 25,000 or 30,000 feet. That vent shrimp then loses all parts of his eye except the retinal strips on its back. Those retinal strips see the black body radiation from the volcano-like eruptions from the vents And they read this to understand both the heat and the deep maroon color. Why did they do this? Well, if they get too close, they become scampy. (laughs) If they get too far away, they're as frozen as they would be in your freezer. So they have to stay right at the right juncture so that they can feed on the bacteria. And they do this really with half an eye, with just the retinal strips on their back. They lose the components of the lens of the cornea, They lose the side components of the pigment that they would normally have in very superficial waters. Why? They're unnecessary. They're extra weight. So they essentially discard more than half of their eye. So while it's not exactly de-evolution, and I don't like that word, it's a regression to a previous state or maybe even an improvement to a new state because each eye fits the animal's niche perfectly, and this fits that animal's niche perfectly.
0: The book is Evolution's Witness, How Eyes Evolve. We're speaking with its author, Dr. Ivan Schwab. Dr. Schwab, I asked about that incorrect linear idea that uh, because people assume that we humans, with our impressive brains, are really the end product of evolution. Um, But in this sort of win some, lose some process of evolution, the human eye is certainly not the best one seeing out there and, and not by a long shot when you compare it to birds. Um, How how do we stack up versus other animals, uh, particularly birds, in the sharpness department?
1: Doug, the the birds that uh, we know of, that we think of, uh, such as the eagle and the swallows and some other predatorial birds, actually have better vision than we do, even far better vision than we do. The potential for vision in birds is so good that it's almost beyond our imagination. Let me give you a few examples. Birds can see movement three times better than we can to the point that they can see the sun move across the horizon or the moon move across the horizon. Astonishing.
0: That that is astonishing.
1: The second part of the uh, amazing movement they can see, while they can see that kind of movement, they also can see what we call flicker fusion. They can see movement of objects that are rapid, Uh, better than we can. And the best example I can give you here is if you watch uh, a young child on a bicycle and the bicycle wheel has a playing card in its spokes. As you watch, that card will appear to turn forward as the child begins to gain speed. As he gains a bit more speed, the card will appear to stand still and then it'll actually appear to go backwards and then disappear. It'll appear like a white spot as speed picks up. And what's happening here is that you see picture. Your retina is making individual pictures of the image as it moves along. And the brain is putting together as fast as it can. So you see it moving forward as the brain puts together these little snapshots. But as the wheel turns faster, The snapshots are only taken fast enough to see the card at the same place each time the wheel turns. So you see it in the same place. Pretty soon it turns so fast that it begins to look like it's moving backwards, which of course it isn't. Eventually it moves so fast you can't pick it out. Well, birds can pick it out much longer than we can. Here's where it's important to you. If you watch a movie, You watch individual frames. It's frame by frame. There's no real motion in a movie. But you rely on your flicker fusion to put that movie together. However, if you take your parent to that same movie, your parent will not watch it. It is a movie. Your parent will watch it individual frame by frame as if you would look through a a book and show them pictures in an album. So they see movement much better than we do, and they see it both fast and slow movement much better than we do. But really, we prize vision, acuity. And that's where birds excel once again. Eagles, for example, probably see four to six times better than we do, depending on how you calculate it. Certainly, they see well enough to be able to see a a rabbit over 200 yards or 200 meters. If you think about the size of a dot 200 meters away, uh, it's astonishing. It's just astonishing they can see a brown rabbit moving in a brown environment over that distance. And yet, if they couldn't, they wouldn't be able to feed, so it fits their niche perfectly. And that doesn't compare to what owls can do, because owls don't necessarily have better acuity than an eagle, but they are able to pick up in the darkness or low-light level a small, brown, cryptically colored uh, animal like a mouse moving through the environment. And then one other neat f- fact I'll give you about what birds can do. This is so so interesting that you wonder how did this arise and then when you realize that it fits their niche, hawks, some hawks, can see into the ultraviolet. Now what good would that do them? Well, it turns out that When mice pee, their urine gives off ultraviolet. So if a hawk is looking for a mouse, and the mouse is aware, the mouse is going to pee to lighten itself so it can move more quickly. Well, it's just leaving a trail pointing directly to it so the (laughs) hawk can follow it in the undergrowth. Astonishing abilities, and you only have to go outside and watch the birds in action to see them hawk insects or to capture a mouse, uh, it's thrilling. It's positively thrilling. Uh,
0: Dr. Schwab, your book mentions that we humans sort of barely qualify to have three photoreceptor molecules, whereas primitive animals, again in quotes, like lampreys, may have five. And you mentioned a shrimp that has like 16. Do we, do we have an understanding of why these animals have to discriminate so well among among colors?
1: Well, Doug, I, I can see you've clearly read my book in detail. <laughs> uh, The uh, mantis shrimp is the example that you were alluding to with 16 visual pigments. Uh, Just to point out, first of all, it's probably 12 visual pigments with a few tricks to make it to 16, so it Mm -hmm. depends on how you calculate it. Mm -hmm. But yes, it has 16 different photoreceptors, 16 different visual pigments, if you will. Why, we're not sure. But let me tell you about this animal. First of all, we have three visual pigments, and that gives us this beautiful array of color we see around us, sunsets, sunrises, the blue sky, all the stuff we see around us, and yet this animal has 16 visual pigments. Think of the array of colors this animal sees, the hues, and it does see into the ultraviolet and probably a little further into deep red than we do, and find discrimination of colors we can't begin to imagine. But that's not all that's amazing about this animal. First of all, the animal that uh, has the most pigment, uh, the, the best one, the peacock mantis shrimp, is about the size of a bratwurst, something you'd get at a river cat's game. Um, and it uh, actually is eaten in some countries. Its eyes are on stalks, and it looks around independently and has a little belt around it that has concentrated omatidia, Remember, those omatidia are the individual units that make up the eye that you might see in a fly. This animal also has omatidia. The visual pigments are housed in uh, all of the omatidia, but especially concentrated in this belt-like area. This is an area of finer vision. This is probably used for courtship, or at least understanding and identifying appropriate females, which are brightly colored. After all, it's called the peacock mantis shrimp. But even that, I have to step aside from just being an ophthalmologist here, even that isn't the most exciting thing about this animal. This animal um, attacks other fish, and it can attack and crack open a mollusk like a clam, and it does so with one of its arms, like a it's a palp, it's a, a, a fist, really, mm-hmm. and it can use that fist to strike a shell and crack it open or to stun and kill a fish. Well, what's the force of that, that strike? The force is as much as a 22 shell and will crack glass. If you put this into your aquarium, it's capable (laughs) of breaking the glass of your aquarium.
0: Well, Dr. Schwab, some animals like humans or birds. They have round pupils. Others like cats or geckos have slit-like pupils. Why is that?
1: This has fascinated people, including me, for a long time. The short answer is we don't know all the answers because there's some peculiar pupils out there. But we do understand some of these. Let's talk about a couple of them. Some of the geckos have multiple pupils and those multiple pupils line up vertically when the pupil is constricted or should I say when the pupils are constricted those four individual pupils are separated like a vertical line of pinholes what does it do well it's a principle and the principle is called the shiner's disc principle doesn't matter that's named after the man who first described it but the principle is this that each one of those pinholes will isolate a ray of light and the four of them together will come to focus at only one point. You can demonstrate this by taking a piece of paper and putting a pinhole in in that piece of paper and using it to focus off in the distance. You can focus surprisingly well, even without your glasses if you need glasses, you can focus surprisingly well with just that single pinhole. But if you have multiple pinholes, and it's constricted within a small circle, they each have a ray of light, and they'll each be bent individually, but they'll only come to focus at one point. So if you have an object opposite, the object in the horizon that you're looking at, it will emit rays, and they will come through those pinholes and be focused at a single point. The geckos that have these multiple pupils will then be able to see an object in the distance and they'll know exactly when it's in focus. And coincidentally, they understand at some cortical, some brain level, they understand what that distance is. Now, if it's within that distance, it's defocused in a specific way. And if it's outside of that focus, it's defocused in a certain way. So it essentially becomes a rangefinder camera. So that lets the gecko know how far away the let's say it's a frog it's about to eat it knows how far away that animal is so that it can gauge its attack if you've ever watched geckos they too are are fun and exciting to watch because they have this acceleration over a very short distance so they may gauge the distance with this pinhole camera and use it to attack They'll say, well, I'm too far from that particular fly or frog or whatever I'm going to attack, so they'll creep up on it until their rangefinder camera says, you're at the right distance, now you can charge. And then they'll leap onto the, the animal. At night, if it's in dim light, however, they can dilate their pupil completely to a circle so those pinholes go away. It's, it's, it's an elaborate set of muscles that do it. That dilate their pupil, and then they simply use visual acuity, sharp visual acuity, to tell uh, how far away their prey is. So basically, these pinhole pupils in geckos are used to gauge distance and to decrease light during a, uh, a brighter environment or even daytime.
0: We're going to hold the interview right here and bring you part two, either next week or the week after. We were speaking with, and having a good time doing it, with professor ivan schwab of uc davis's department of ophthalmology about his book evolution's witness how eyes evolved let's take a short break i'm douglas Everett. you're listening to radio parallax stick around